0: Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Australia opted for wars, not vaccines. Now Australian governments not only have to answer for the callousness of these policies and their violations of international law, but also their failure to protect the public, with several cities currently under lockdown and infections spreading. Separating young children from their parents and abandoning them in a place deemed high risk violates the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Preventing citizens from leaving and returning violates the international protocol on civil and political rights. Some might argue that the curfews, movement, and border restrictions are all necessary to protect public health. But are they proportionate or they linger? And here's the problem. Australia is the only Anglophone democracy without a Bill of Rights. The High Court has expressly stated, there aren't any implied rights in the Constitution, merely limitations on power, and these are increasingly whittled down by a vitiated bench. ASIO has extensive powers, indefinite detention of asylum seekers has now been written into law, and Bernard Caleri, one of Australia's most senior counsel, is prosecuted in a secret political trial because he represented a whistleblower of the government's embarrassing, illegal, and shameful activity spying on Timor-Leste negotiations over oil in the Timor Gap. Indigenous communities continue to be discriminated against. They are disproportionately imprisoned. They're even abused and killed in prison. The sacred sites are blown up by mining companies with state approval. And Australia is also one of the worst emitters of greenhouse gases per capita. This year's Sustainable Development Report ranked Australia last out of 193 countries for action taken to combat climate change. This is particularly distressing as Australia, along with its small low-lying island neighbours, faces existential threats from climate change and will warm faster than the rest of the world. Now, more than ever, Australians need to call for a constitution that enshrines individual rights, which would include third-generation rights, such as the right to a clean environment. Plaintiffs challenging government incursion must not, as is the case now, be liable for the government's costs if they lose, or only mining magnets will be able to go to court. I recently interviewed Geoffrey Robinson, Queen's Counsel, Human Rights Crusader, advocate and author, who is representing abandoned Australians before the Human Rights Committee, on the necessity for a Bill of Rights in Australia, an issue Geoffrey has been championing, including in his book, The Statute of Liberty. Geoffrey is also championing another right to return, that of the Parthenon marbles, the heart of Greece. Looted and bleached, they are now held hostage by the British Museum, which perfidiously panders to the world that it is their saviour. How do we best protect international human rights? One way Jeffrey advises is a more targeted approach, the adoption by countries of the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act. Adopted by numerous countries, with Australia hopefully enacting its own version later this year, these acts punish human rights violators with economic sanctions and travel bans, preventing them from exploiting the gains of the human rights abuse. Importantly, they target the abusers, not their victims, and like nationwide sanctions, such as those imposed in Iraq and Serbia, which effectively deny medical care to hundreds of thousands of children. From sanctions to COVID, the collateral consequences of our actions can be catastrophic. This is why, on both a domestic and an international level, we need robust participation, a precautionary approach, and proportionality within a human rights framework. Welcome to Gravity, Jeffrey. Thank you. Australia closed its borders, subject to a few exemptions, on March 20, 2020. Currently, around 36,000 Australians remain registered, 5,000 who are registered as vulnerable. The Board of Airline Representatives, however, estimates the number is closer to 100,000. You represent petitioners before the Human Rights Committee, arguing that Australia is arbitrarily denying the right to return, a right enshrined under Article 12.4 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. How has Australia restricted its citizens and residents from returning in a manner that is not required by the public health emergency and in violation of its obligations under international human rights law?
1: Well, 12.4 of the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, which Australia ratified as long ago as 1981, gives everyone the right to return to their native land, and uh, it's called reflected in many centuries of national feeling, and everyone who grows up in Australia or has been given Australian citizenship is entitled, under international law, not to be arbitrarily stopped from going back to their home, and of course, There are about one million expatriate Australians. Australians are quite famous for traveling the world and finding careers uh, overseas. But, of course, they retain links to their native land. They're expatriates. They're not expatriates. (laughs) And so it does cause great concern among much more than You quote 35,000. In fact, they are only the Australians who've registered with the government for help to get home. There are tens of thousands uh, who want to come home under their own steam and don't want government support to get home, and they are all being denied uh, a passage home unless and even those and most of Australians abroad now have had one vaccine or the other. They've been jabbed. They're not uh, greatly in danger of spreading, and they have to do two weeks in quarantine. Now, that's particularly brutal in Australia (laughs) because you're not allowed out for your hour of exercise a day like prisoners, You're cooped up with armed police guarding you in a hotel, uh, a quarantine, what what is called a quarantine hotel. Of course, quarantine hotels in Australia are where you're most likely to catch coronavirus. So, uh, for Australians who are prepared to do that and uh, to suffer for two weeks, they can't uh, even so they can't get home because the government has arbitrarily put quotas on the number of people that airlines can take. So the airlines are responding by limiting the places as they have to because they just can't bring in more than 3,000 people a week. And uh, that means that they have been able to demand business class fares that are four times as much as business class fares normally are. So there are a lot of not over-wealthy Australians who simply can't get home, and that's been the case for 18 months. So I took test cases to the Human Rights Committee in Geneva on the basis of Article 12.4, which is, for lawyers, it's uh, an article that is not modified or qualified by public health emergency or anything. It's an absolute right to come home, and it's not been uh, allowed by Australia. Australia, of course, has its own problems. (laughs) They, They didn't order... The vaccines when they should. They've had a very slow rollout, one of the slowest in the world, and so they have not currently a problem. But still, it's uh, an entitlement of Australians to come home. So that's why I took the case. And it's uh, winding its way now through the UN procedures. The government of Australia has a duty to answer it and that they will do within the next couple of months and then I shall reply to that and the matter will go for adjudication before the committee.
0: Now the UN Human Rights Committee in April issued an interim decision I believe urging Australia Mm -hmm. to facilitate and ensure the prompt return of two Australian citizens you're representing. Both I believe who are fully vaccinated are coming from the US and are willing to undergo quarantine so have they come home?
1: One of them has, but through no help from the government. The government of Australia has rejected the Human Rights Committee interim measure, and fortunately, one of them has been able to get home under his own steam. The other uh, is, is not being facilitated, and what the government has done is now to ask the Human Rights Committee to revoke its measure on the basis that these are simply, and and one of the test cases wanted to get home to see a dying relative. It's quite common as a reason for wanting to go home. And the other was in America and his visa was about to run out. And he didn't uh, obviously want to be arrested and spend time in an American prison, which uh, can be a consequence of being an illegal immigrant. So uh, the Australian government response was that this was just a disagreeable consequence of the pandemic, important enough to justify an interim measure. So, it really, is I think at the depth of of uh, callousness to say that wanting to go home to be with your dying mother or wanting to go home to avoid imprisonment uh, are simply disagreeable consequences. But that is the Australian government's position.
0: And hmm. under Article Twelve, Subsection Two. Uh, there's also the right to leave a country, including one's own country, and Australia has prohibited its citizens and residents from leaving its territories <laughs> without an exemption That's right. and recently expanded yes. to dual citizens ordinarily living overseas, which is crazy. That's right. Now, while under 12.3, this right can be restricted as necessary to protect public health, how does Australia go beyond what is necessary in limiting its citizens and residents' freedom of movement? Well,
1: you see, uh, this is yet another outrage that came in uh, the other day. Uh, You can't, even those citizens who are wealthy enough to uh, fly first or business class and who are lucky enough to to get within the uh, categories of people allowed in, (laughs) they can't get out except by government permission. And uh, I've just had a relative who sent me the exemption form and you really have to go cap in hand to some bureaucrat in the Department of Foreign Affairs and convince them that you have cause to go home, to go to your um, home in London or New York, you know, you can have, you you could have got gotten out to see a, a dying member of the family or put some uh, property in order, and uh, you can't necessarily go back to your wife, husband, children uh, in your home in London or New York because the government can stop you it is quite an extraordinary development in which this particular government is making an australian passport pretty valueless hmm. you might as well burn it but uh, <laughs> it is just uh, it, for, for anyone else, any other country except North Korea, uh, it would be, and perhaps Afghanistan soon, it would be intolerable. Hmm. But uh, Australia, you see, unlike other democratic countries, where it, all democratic countries, does not have a Bill of Rights. It does not have a charter. Its constitution is a horse and buggy document put together at, 1900, and uh, it doesn't have any rights. And so that's the problem. You can't go to court or get a lawyer to go to court in Sydney or Melbourne and demand your rights because you've got none. And mm. this is what expatriate Australians are suddenly learning. Mm. And, of course, you say, well, why? How could that ever happen? be, uh, how could a government remain popular by dealing in this way with a class of its citizens? But uh, this particular government is banking on and is whipping up a kind of uh, anger against expatriates. It's quite interesting to see how they are Pretending that it's it's our fault that we were, went stayed overseas, <laughs> and it so that the public shouldn't have any sympathy for us, and so politically, that is probably why the government is um, going to these oppressive extremes. I think legally, uh, there is no basis for challenge so it can get away with them. Politically, it is uh, relying on me—a uh, sort of jealousy, enmity, whatever, of people who stay home in Australia who think expatriates are somehow disloyal to their country or don't deserve uh, to get back. And uh, so it's a rather unhappy situation.
0: Hmm. What
1: Uh, The only way uh, to change it politically is to change the government. And uh, Australian expatriates are not very well organized. They're not actually uh, in a position to do that. I do remember, however, I was involved in a campaign. There was a character called David Hicks. He was an Australian. He was the only white man in Guantanamo Bay. And the Howard government under John Howard some years ago didn't lift a finger to get him out. There was no real evidence against him. But he was stuck. And we had a campaign on various bases to put pressure on the government. And uh, I was told by a very... Uh, senior member of the governing party, the Liberal Party, that um, what changed it and what made the government reconsider was their own polling, which uh, they particularly polled a class called Doctors' Wives Wives of Doctors <laughs> if they start getting worried then the Liberal Party is in difficulties, and they discovered that they were rather worried about the treatment David Hicks sitting in Guantanamo for years and so the government got him out, it only took a few days for the Australian government to reach some agreement with the Americans and he was back home but that uh, that is the only way that expatriates are going to be able to exercise their rights by putting political pressure on the government it It is possible there's an election uh, predicted for may next year, and I remember John Howard when he was quite a smart prime minister he he, he uh, was very kind to expatriates. He gave dual citizenship, which enabled many of them to pursue careers uh, abroad. And that was a very important gift. He funded their organizations. He, I, I remember attending a Christmas party he threw for us at Kirribilli House where he embraced Clive James. and uh, said how wonderful we were. But he knew that the majority of votes, absentee votes, favoured his party. Hmm. So he was keen to keep us on side. So I think Mr. Morrison, who is the prime minister, may, may be making a mistake because I guess this is the only political power that expatriates have to make sure that their friends, their families who can't uh, link up with them should vote against Mr. Morrison and his government. And that may, um, it it may cause uh, his loss of office. But uh, I'm afraid that the degree of callousness and lack of uh, support that Australia always says it uh, supports the rule of law. But in fact, in, in these respects, it doesn't.
0: Mm, yes, and it's also putting parents in a pernicious predicament. In fact, more than 200 Australian miners have been and continue to be separated from their parents in India. Some as young, they're toddlers, mm. and they're not allowed unaccompanied in repatriation flights. Their relatives in India are denied entry to accompany them back to Australia, and their parents are somehow denied exemption to travel to accompany their own children back to their own countries.
1: Yes, that was terrible. I was in Australia at the time and, uh, of course, there was rampaging COVID in India and the government's response was simply to close down all uh, flights and to uh, refuse to have Medivac flights for those who had uh, contracted COVID and to impose five years imprisonment, incredible, on any who tried successfully to come home. Uh, And it was, the government was only faulted when there was an Australian cricket team in, (laughs) in India at the time and they got out by the Maldives and came home and condemned the government. And so uh, some flights were ordered to uh, bring people back from India. But it was uh, a terrible time where the government showed that it just had no sense of humanity at all. And it's, it's crazy, the arrangements at the moment, because everyone knows that two weeks Hard quarantine is unnecessary for those who've been jabbed. It could be one week, so you could increase the number, double the numbers allowed in. Or better still, it could be home quarantine. I mean, the expatriates who want to get home have not only been vaccinated, but they have homes of relatives to go to and stay in for however long and take however many. Tests And so there's no danger, but you've seen how hysterical, I think, is the word. And uh, the government is doing this largely to cover up its own astonishing failure. I mean, Australia is one of the wealthiest uh, uh, countries in the world, comparatively. And uh, last year, you remember, dear old Dr. Fauci, saying in June, there is only one way out of this pandemic, it's vaccination, Mm -hmm. vaccination, and vaccination. (laughs) Did the Australian government order a vaccine? Well, they first of all relied on the University of Queensland. the idea of Australia's future depending on a few scientists at the University of Queensland is just hilarious, if it's not tragic, because, of course, they came up with a vaccine, but it was a vaccine for HIV AIDS and not the coronavirus. So they then ordered a lot of AstraZeneca, but they ordered it at a time when AstraZeneca was stopping and starting it was having side effects and it was only 76 percent effective compared to pfizer which was 95 percent so what does these morons in canberra do they order i um they order the the vaccine that is much less effective so and now of course i mean thank God, AstraZeneca has proved itself much better. It's 85% effective, and everyone should take it. But, of course, because of those problems, because one in a million people might get blood clots, there's a great resistance to AstraZeneca, and everyone is waiting for Pfizer. This has become a kind of refrain. In Australia, we're waiting for Pfizer, but it's like waiting for God. You don't. Get. <laughs> Pfizer is just not going to come until the end of the year or early next year. So this is, and, and meanwhile, uh, there is, of course, a a lot of a lot of it around in New South Wales and Queens and Victoria and so forth. So it really is a sorry and unlucky country, but it's been unlucky because of the stupidity and there's no other word for it. I mean this of uh, Scott Morrison is probably I think the least intelligent Prime minister Australia has ever had. We um, usually intelligence doesn't matter all that much but I think the um, I go back to Robert Menzies and I can't think of any prime minister who'd be so stupid as not to order the right vaccine and the right amount of it. I don't think Malcolm Turnbull would have made that mistake. Even Tony Abbott wouldn't have made that mistake. But uh, the government is trying, I think, to cover up because as late as December, you had Scott Morrison saying, oh, we're in no hurry. We'll have a box seat and watch all the other countries get (laughs) on with it. And of course they did. And uh, Australia didn't and is suffering. But what is not acceptable is its breaches of international law and the oppression, really, of a group of its citizens, up to a million of them, who live overseas or who have connections, jobs, families, that uh, take them to multiple countries.
0: Mm. Yeah, and as you said, uh, one million. Um, But now I want to turn to uh, the almost dictatorial power provided to the health minister under Section 477, uh, subsection 1 of the Commonwealth Biosecurity Act of 2015. Now, the federal court uh, looked at this matter in Newman versus the Minister for Health and Aged Care. And I am just astounded by this decision. So if Australia is a democracy, surely the executive cannot make laws. There's got to be a non-delegation doctrine, just like we have in the United States. Well,
1: that's true. But I have a theory about the Biosecurity Act, which does give these dictatorial powers and five-year imprisonment at the whim of a minister, and the minister is not not a very good one, his name is, but uh, why did Parliament allow this? Well, the simple answer, I'm afraid, is that it's a very long act, and so long that I doubt whether the characters who were MPs even got round to reading it. I think the powers are in section 170 or something, and I I suspect they didn't read much beyond the um, preface, the introduction, and uh, the early, they, they just didn't pick up on it Parliament is not a safeguard of our liberties when it doesn't have when courts do not have the tools through a Bill of Rights to strike down uh, dictatorial powers. So that's why the Minister of Health can get away with it.
0: That's actually quite right, because if we had a Bill of Rights, then this chilling uh, decision wouldn't have uh, come about. Because if you read the decision, they said, well, listen, in Australia, we have the principle of legality, which limits the abrogation of fundamental common law rights, and the right to enter Australia as an Australian citizen is a fundamental common law right, which can only be abrogated by a statute that's clear and unequivocal. So therefore, really, the court is saying the only limit to power in Australia is what power intends. (laughs) I mean, that's no limit at all, is it?
1: (laughs) Well, it's not. And in any other kind, decent law-abiding country, you would have a constitution. And where you have these outrageous liberties taken by ministers, you would have a court to appeal to and to apply the rule of law. But Australia doesn't have that. It's one of the great weaknesses of Australian governance.
0: Mm. And, and of course, if you speak with someone on the other side uh, that doesn't want a Bill of Rights and they say, well, why do we need a Bill of Rights? We're a vibrant democracy, which, of course, We're not, if we look at this. And (laughs) um, we have all these implied rights, but they're not really rights, are they? Because the High Court has said, for instance, the right of political communication, which it looked at in Gurna and Victoria recently in November 2020, and they said that the implied freedom of political communication is not an individual right akin to the First Amendment, but rather a restriction On legislative power. And this follows a decision in 2019 when the High Court astoundingly had in Bajari and Comcare that the court, in an analysis of whether a law places an unjustified burden on the freedom of political communication, they can't look to the particular plaintiff's burden, but look to the burden on the general community. One must wonder how that impacts objectionable speech to the majority, if all you have to look at is political communication generally. This case, Gurner and Victoria, where the High Court said there's no freedom of movement because the only communication, the only free speech in Australia is political. Who defines what the bounds of political even are? I mean, this decision is so chilling.
1: Well, it all goes back. I mean, Australia had a very good High Court back in the... 80s and 90s, if there'd been an Olympic medal for judging, I think Australian Australian High Court under Mason would have won it. And these good judges, particularly Bill Dean, who later became uh, Governor General, um, were just bewildered by the lack of whatever courts in all other advanced countries had, of uh, a power to oversee government and by judicial review to stop it acting unreasonably or in bad faith or or whatever. But um, they had a case. It was a defamation case because Britain inherited defamation law from Britain without having, as Britain had, a, um, a human rights act. Uh, they decided, and, and David Longy, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, tried to sue um, various newspapers and television companies for being rude about him. <laughs> Australians being rude about New Zealanders is something of a tradition, <laughs> but uh, he was he was upset enough to sue, and uh, over criticisms of him as a politician, and that was when Bill Dean and and the others invented almost, although they, they argued from the fact that Australia had uh, a constitution which guaranteed voting was a democratic constitution, that since free speech was a fundamental of democracy, there was an implied right to freedom of political speech. And this was a doctrine that was developed in the context of the um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand and political matters. But uh, I did a case there, The Goodnick, Dow Jones versus Goodnick. I acted when... Um, Barons, which is, you know, a well known American business paper, had done a a long article investigating Mr. Gutnick and his means of uh, selling his products in America. And of course, it was sent back, emailed back to members of his synagogue in Victoria. So he started an action in victoria to sue for libel and i tried to use the freedom of political communication as a defence but oh this was hopeless because it wasn't he wasn't a politician he was a businessman selling his wares and therefore should be open of course to media scrutiny scrutiny of the business community is uh, just as important, if not more, uh, for the media to uh, look at in the public interest. But no, you couldn't argue that. And so many articles of great public interest have to be cut or withdrawn, or uh, they, they run the danger of massive defamation damages. So that's a chilling effect. On free speech, it comes from not having a bill of rights and a full-blooded public interest defence.
0: Hmm. Well, now I want to turn to uh, Witness K and Ben is and who, mm. who are true patriots, revealing our government's oh, shameful bugging of Timor-Less officers to learn of its strategy mm. before the ICJ respecting the controversy over oil in the Timor Gap. Now, they were both charged under national security laws years later and Witness K pled guilty. Now, Bernard, who was his attorney, who's a barrister, is prosecuted in camera. I mean, that is just, it's it's just so appalling. Australia is not only trampling on human rights, but even just the very rule of law, it seems, in this prosecution.
1: Well, this is a massively uh, disturbing case because, and I know a little about it, in um, in the year 2003, I think, when Mr Downer was uh, Foreign Minister, he authorised a bugging of... East Timor parliamentary offices where the uh, lawyers for East Timor, or Timor-Leste as we should now call it, were working, preparing their defense or or their strategy for a case uh, against Australia involving the oil in the Timor Sea. And it was an important case, obviously, but it was utterly wrong for the Australian spooks to run a bugging operation of the offices of a friendly government's lawyers. I mean, <laughs> the people of Timor West had saved Australian flyers from you know, the Japanese in the war, they were friendly, poor, friendly people. And so, Uh, these idiot ASIO people decided to do them down and did a big bugging operation to find out what their lawyers were planning. So in uh, one of the buggers uh, from ASIO, Witness K, came clean. He, He was a whistleblower. He decided this was morally wrong, as indeed it was. So he went to a solicitor in Canberra, a former attorney general of the ACT, Bernard Caleri, and uh, told him, and Bernard acted for him when he was prosecuted and gave some press interviews about the case. Well, retribution. ASIS and the federal police got onto them, arrested Witness K, uh, arrested Bernard Caleri, and were about to, wanted the attorney general to prosecute because you couldn't prosecute without the attorney's consent. And George Brandes was attorney general at the time and for two years he refused or he sat on the case and did nothing about it. Then in comes this deeply controversial figure, Christian Porter, who uh, first thing he did was to authorize the secret prosecution of Witness K and of uh, Bernard Culeri for publishing details of the trial of Witness K. Now, this is just so antipathetic to Australian democratic traditions. And, uh, of course, when Christian Porter himself was accused by the ABC of rape, he went public and sued them and said, I have got. I want my vindication in public court hearing, which of course he had denied to Bernard Kaleri. Uh, it's absurd to suggest that there are secrets here. We all know what happened. It's a, we all know how devious and uh, dreadful Australia's behavior was in bugging the East Timorese and trying to do them down, and uh, if so it's no secret. But purely to save government embarrassment, uh, this case is being heard in secret. When I was there a month or so ago, the three days of legal argument in a closed court in Canberra took place, and uh, it really—it's—it's it's quite disgraceful and it dishonours, I think, uh, Australian legal
0: traditions. I agree with you. I think it's preposterous. And Australia has a pretty bad human rights record when you think about it. What we've done to Indigenous Australians and what we're still doing, they continue to be discriminated against, are overrepresented, abused in prison. Mandatory sentencing in Western Australia and Northern Territory is arbitrary, and not proportionate to the offences and Um, is mostly exercised against Australian Indigenous youth, and Australia maintains one of the lowest ages of criminal responsibility in the entire world at a crisp 10. And recently, it appears that the Morrison government just wants to trample over all human rights. There's this Orwellian justification allowing for indefinite detention of asylum seekers – Is somehow Mm. our commitment to uh, international human rights. I don't. (laughs) And um, currently, Mm -hmm. it seems they're using the fear that everybody has of COVID and also the collateral effects of lockdown to push through an ACO bill that's going to make ASIO's powers, which are already extensive, even more extensive. ASIO has far-reaching powers to question and detain and they just want to make it even more extensive. Now, how if Australia had a Bill of Rights, how would we be able to challenge all these tramplings?
1: Well, we'd be able to challenge exercises of the power, and that's important. Abuses of the power. Some powers have to be written rather generally, but Uh, they can always be abused irrationally or in bad faith or vindictively. And so that's where access to a court is important and Australia doesn't have it. Australia talks a good game on human rights. It's there at the United Nations pretending to be supportive. Uh, It has supported the International Criminal Court. It was one of the allies that defeated Hitler in the Second World War. It uh, talks, as they say, a good game and will support human rights initiatives generally. But there are moats in its own eye, most particularly in its dealings with um my asylum seekers. I mean Manus Island was a terrible thing, putting them behind bars in Woomera and previous governments. Um there doesn't seem to be any great awareness, and that's perhaps because we don't have a Bill of Rights and the other measures that you mentioned, we don't have a parliament that is really acute. To them and is uh, careful to monitor the bills and point out, it, it could be that we need better structures to identify these dictatorial threats mm-hmm. that you speak of. Indefinite detention is outrageous. You can't lock one, someone up and... Throw away the key when they haven't committed a crime.
0: One argument that you always hear, at least I used to, when we debated this in law school too many years ago now, they said that uh, we don't need a Bill of Rights in Australia. And if we did, it would be undemocratic because it would remove power away from elected officials and give it to an unelected judiciary. Now, what do you say to that?
1: <laughs> well, I think that's idiotic because, <laughs> yes. in a, the idea that Parliament will uh, be capable of considering thousands upon thousands of cases and sitting to decide whether executive action is reasonable or uh, in bad faith or whatever, uh, is nonsense. Parliament uh, only sits for about half the year. It doesn't uh, deal with, Individual cases. You need a decision-making machinery, and you need people who are trained in reason, reasoning, and fairness, and so forth, and a, where you have a an appeal structure. So it's quite wrong to think that Parliament can be any substitute for the courts. It's courts that must. Decide what fairness requires in individual cases. You can't submit them to parliament. That's nonsense.
0: Hmm. Well, also it benefits the majority, and I suppose one of the main reasons of human rights is to protect the vulnerable minorities (laughs) against the majority. I think the main
1: reason I always think is for education. If you've got uh, a bill of rights, you can teach your children what it means. It can be read and understood in schools in America. Kids learn to recite
0: Mm
1: -hmm. the Bill of the First Amendment and so forth, but uh, you simply, the Australian school kids are denied any opportunity to feel that they've got a document that endorses, consolidates the values of the country, the values that the country pretends To uphold.
0: And so, Australia on a federal level doesn't have a Bill of Rights, but not all states and territories lack a Bill of Rights. Uh, Queensland Mm. has one, uh, ACT had the initial one, and Victoria uh, Victoria has one. And that is what I wanted to ask you about. So, in November 2020, the Supreme Court of Victoria decided Loello versus Giles, which held that the curfew in Melbourne and the restriction for people to stay within five kilometres of their home did not violate Victoria's Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities because it was a legitimate aim to protect public health and the restrictions were reasonably proportionate. Now, Sydney is enforcing the five-kilometre radius Mm. too. Now, of course, some people, and usually people without the same means as others, live in places where they can't access a park or a beach. Um, So... How do we detail this? Um, you know, all rights are sort of competitive. Of course, we need to protect the public health and we do need to impose lockdowns. But what are the restrictions so that, for instance, we don't just listen to what's easiest for the police to find people, which is, it seems to yes. be one of the reasons they had the curfew in the first place in Melbourne?
1: I think um, I, I don't know the details of these cases. So You'll have to excuse me on that. I think at a time when deaths were were mounting in Victoria, um, probably they've got. I mean, the, part of the problem is that we've got some dreadful chief medical officers or chief health officers. We've got some woman in Queensland who is discouraging people from getting vaccinated Um, so each state is different but um, they've got quite a good fellow in Victoria Brett Sutton he's a bit of a sex symbol they put him on tea towels and you can get get his face on a doona Uh, so he obviously has a certain credibility and uh, they did have a very bad rash of uh, deaths at one point last year and so I don't know what the sense of the five mile limit is. The right of individuals, which is denied them in quarantine, uh, to have an hour's exercise a day. And if you commit murder and go to prison, you're at least got that right. Um, I think is, uh, is quite serious and, and consideration must be given to that. But, um, In general, there is a strong case, but there have been misuses of it. There were, for example, Black Lives Matter um, demonstrations by Sydney University students who were masked, who were spaced, and so on. And the police thuggishly stopped them. And uh, I think that was... A serious breach of uh, the right to assemble. Uh, New South Wales doesn't have <laughs> any kind of charter, but that went too far, and the courts uh, were not aggressive in stopping it. But so, so there have been uh, excesses, but uh, of course, I the the anti-vax oh. lobby. The uh, people who demonstrate against all restrictions are really uh, a minority fringe.
0: Well, thank God for that. Now, we started this interview discussing the right to return, and I want to now turn to the return of the so-called Elgin Marbles, The Parthenon Mm. is one of the, if not the epitome of human architectural and artistic achievements. As you point out in your article and in your recent illuminating and actually quite riveting book, Who Owns History? Elgin's Loot and the Case for Returning Plundered Treasure. It's a cultural artifact so important to humanity that even UNESCO uses it as its symbol. From its independence, Greece has continually and vociferously requested their return and designed its beautiful Acropoli Museum for their viewing and protection right near the Parthenon and amongst all the other marbles. In other words, the best place, I think, not just for Greeks, but for all of humanity to view them together. Is the British argument that they salvaged the marbles from destruction and that they have protected them so well over the years uh, true? And even if it were true, what is Greece's claim to cultural restitution under international law?
1: Well, this is a moving story, isn't it? The 19th century was characterised from its beginning by forms of colonialism and by imperialism particularly in africa and asia but also elsewhere where the armies the imperial powers the west the um, corporations went in and in the desire for land and the desire for wealth in the desire for things to exhibit simply stole vast amounts of cultural property, much of which is now residing in the British Museum or the uh, museums of Germany or, of course, sold on to America. So there is a general debate, an important debate, about the right of restitution to people who um, have, uh, have, have, as it were, the right to appreciate, to teach their children about their own cultural heritage. Australia has an example in a shield that was dropped on the beach by uh, an indigenous person who was shot by Captain Cook when he arrived at Botany Bay. And uh, the the Endeavour, the ship, took the shield back and it was Deposited in the British Museum, and it means a lot to Aboriginal people. It was the the first shot fired in anger by white men invading their country, and uh, of course there were sixty thousand deaths from shooting or from disease or from um, smallpox brought in afterwards. So it's iconic. And the British Museum refuses absolutely to let it go back and be um, iconic in Australia to the indigenous community uh, where it belongs. So there are all sorts of reasons. It's not great art, of course, but it does have that cultural heritage value. And uh, in the case of the Marbles, which is called the Elgin Marbles, they're actually the Parthenon Marbles. Uh, the Parthen it is undoubtedly the greatest uh, art feature of um, ancient history. It's one of the wonders. It's the only remaining wonder of the world from ancient times, five hundred B.C. And, uh, of course, when this Syphilitic Scottish aristocrat Elgin was uh, made ambassador, he saw the opportunity of getting away with a lot of art to decorate his mansion in Scotland. So he sent a party to bribe the Turks. The Turks were then in occupation of Athens and the Turkish government didn't allow refused to allow the French to to touch the marbles but um, he sent his men to bribe lavishly never had uh, Turkish officers been baited with so much money, jewels shooting pistols English this and that and they bribed them to turn a blind eye. Why, they ripped these wonderful sculptures of Phidias off the walls of the temple, took them down to British warships, and uh, took them back. Lord Elgin to enable Lord Elgin to sell them in Britain, and this uh, there was no excuse for this. Elgin didn't save them, didn't rescue them, as the British Museum lyingly pretends. He, he took them without any authorization through bribery. When uh, he and he didn't offer obviously to buy them; they were worth a lot at the time. He knew that he, any offer to purchase them would be turned down because it was against the law for occupying powers, even then, to uh, despoil or affect religious temples. But uh, no, he he simply ripped them off the walls, took them away, and sold them. And he had no title whatsoever whatsoever no right whatsoever to do it. So, of course, from the time they became independent in 1831, the Greeks demanded them back, and they have been demanding them and demanding them. I remember Melina Mercuri and so on. But, of course, the British just say, possession of nine parts of the law, we're not going to Give them back. Boris Johnson has announced that. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, had he been elected as uh, leader, the Labour, last Labour leader, would have uh, given them back. And the British public, on in opinion polls, is quite happy to give them back. But uh, no, there is still this colonial attitude in Britain, Australian Indigenous will not get back a, a bark shield, and the Greek nation will not get back the greatest wonder of the world, to which their predecessors had contrib- had had built. So, I think the only way forward, and I'm, of course, coronavirus has made everything <laughs> delayed, everything. Is to take Britain to the International Court of Justice for an advisory opinion. Um, UNESCO is hopeless, I have to say. Uh, it's Donald Trump took away all their money, and uh, so they don't. Twenty percent of their budget was slashed, but they've been very lazy. They could produce they could make a reference to the international court of justice but uh, i think disgracefully they haven't but uh, the general assembly might do so there are plans to have a motion for uh, an opinion from the international court and i think it's time that and and there is the material for international law to recognize that in the case of wrongfully obtained cultural heritage, there is a right of return.
0: Mm. Particularly for works that are abstracted from the principal works, so you don't get to appreciate it in entirety.
1: Half these wonderful figures are in Greece because Elgin left some of them Um the other half are in a dirty, dingy room in the British Museum. Bleached. And in Bloomsbury. <laughs> and uh, bleached, yes. So uh, they need to be, this is a case of reuniting that is uh, important.
0: And of course, this isn't just Greece we're talking about. In London, Paris, New York, Berlin, St. Petersburg they have some of the best museums in the world and yet it's from colonial conquest, war, occupation. And yet we have such a robust international customary law with respect to occupiers not being able to pillage. And yet it has been done.
1: (laughs) Mm, Absolutely.
0: Yes. And, and it seems that, uh, if we did have a, a cultural restitution with museums giving back, that they wouldn't have to give back everything, that we could give back the keys to one's culture, but not necessarily every single artifact. Oh, there are
1: many ways of doing it. You could uh, Museums could accept that the property belongs to the originators and they could uh, pay rent to keep them.
0: Hmm. There
1: are... Uh, many ways in which this could be achieved.
0: I want to turn now to economic rights. So human rights, practically speaking, begin with breakfast, right? The right to food, adequate housing, sanitation, water, education. All these rights really are the fundamental are the fundamentals of the actual exercise of civil and political rights. Civil and political rights are contingent upon them, yet the international community has historically separated them and relegated them to a secondary position. The International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights has no adjudicatory body akin to the Human Rights Committee. How do economic, social, and cultural rights interplay with civil and political rights? And how, in your opinion, should the international community address economic and social rights?
1: Well, it's a, yeah. a long answer that could take our Need to lecture, but it does strike me. I've I talk with uh, over the years with a lot of Auschwitz survivors, and uh, there are sadly decreasing numbers of them. But what they have all said is that in Auschwitz, in other camps. What they needed, they weren't thinking of human rights at all. What they were thinking of was food. They were starving, and that was the memory that they took away the pain of hunger. and so yes, it is a right to good to to food, to sustainability, to education, and so forth. But a division was made in the 40s. Between the two, they had separate conventions, one of which wasn't enforceable. It's always thought to be easier to enforce. Um, the liberty questions, whether you've been unjustly imprisoned or whatever, can be decided more simply than whether you have been properly educated. I don't think that's the case. And I think we will see increasing demands for the economic and social rights to be submitted and to be adjudicated. They've made some headway, I have to say, in South Africa. And from time to time, these, uh, but it is, it will be a long battle
0: now historically corporations have not been subjects of international law even though some multinational corporations wield greater influence and hold greater resources in a vast number of states and some violate human rights with impunity the east india company pillaged mm. what what was then yeah. india uh, and Faber, Krupp, Siemens, and even IBM aided and abetted the Nazis, and Nestlé continues to use trafficked children um, in, in its uh, plantations in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, but if, just but a few uh, scattering examples of how corporations... Yes,
1: well, it all goes back to Nuremberg and the failure to prosecute Krupp, uh, who was the armaments manufacturer He was said to be ill, and then, of course, Coop's son was available for prosecution. It, it's a long and messy story, but there is uh, a failure to incorporate companies as defendants in international criminal law, and that needs to be looked at. Some measure of accountability has been achieved by using civil law and there have been a number of developments in suing corporations, um, both in their place of establishment and in their place of operation, for traditional torts like negligence, nuisance. So it's not a gloomy picture within the Uh, interstices of civil recovery law there have been some great cases but as we all know it takes a lot of money to bring one and to finance one and there are serious deficiencies in using the civil law to make companies accountable
0: Mm, Yeah,
1: and uh, there's a failure too to pierce the veil and get at the individuals in companies who make the decisions they should certainly be subject to prosecution and i've been looking recently at these agreements that uh, prosecution serious fraud officers make with individ- with corporations that are caught bribing bribing extensively corporations like rolls royce has a dreadful record of corrupting people in countries to get them to buy their cars and very rarely do our executives prosecuted these agreements are made whereby the uh, rolls royce pays a few hundred million and uh, gets its executives out of jail free. There are a lot of developments yet to come that would be desirable.
0: Mm. Well, the Canadian Supreme Court recently, I think in May this year, just uh, said that through the doctrine of adoption, Canadian corporations may be liable for breaches of peremptory norms under international law. And I think uh, recently in the Netherlands, Royal Dutch Shell was also found Mm. liable for its, terrible acts in nigeria so there are uh advancements there are there. stirrings
1: in this area i think yeah the, the problem is generally that you need a lot of money to uh to get them to court
0: that's a very very good comment and actually the the more that so for instance for law students they're thinking oh procedure who cares about procedure but then when you start practicing law you realize procedure is actually substantive and yes. even in in australia it's it's quite horrible to realize that one of the principal reasons there aren't so many challenges to these draconian powers of the government recently um, is not only because there is no Bill of Rights. I mean, that's a main part of it. But it's that if you lose, you actually have to pay the government's costs, which Mm. is atrocious.
1: Mm. (laughs) Yes, it is. There are some ways, in Britain in particular, where uh, most cases that need to be brought can be, and that cost burden can be relaxed or negatived, but um, it is a, a problem.
0: Now, the United States on a federal level across the majority of states, unfortunately, continues to carry the death penalty. And the average time a person suffers on death row is 10 years, and sometimes nearly two decades. And your successful argument before the Privy Council in Pratt and Morgan versus Jamaica acknowledged that it was torture to hold a person for so long. I believe in that case it was 14 years under impending sentence of death. Now, the Eighth Amendment in the US prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, and the US has ratified the Convention Against Torture, which does exist with the same force as domestic law and prohibits torture. The U.S. did ratify before the Guantanamo Bay incidents, but it seems your argument is persuasive to be taken up in the U.S. and if accepted, might would actually lead to the release of many prisoners suffering on death row right now.
1: Well, this argument came to me when I was on death row visiting Michael X, who was a black power advocate. He was in Britain. Uh, he was a friend of John Lennon's. He's on the cover Sergeant Pepper. And uh, he went back to his native Trinidad and was uh, then mixed up in a murder which he denied that he committed but he was nonetheless convicted. And he'd been held for a couple of years. And the problem was that Britain gave all these countries constitutions but in the 60s made sure that the death penalty was survived, although because they had bills of rights built built in, torture was absolutely banned. And the government the prisons in British colonies now countries retained all the gruesome impedimenta of the British death penalty hanging, you know, the, the reading of the death warrant, uh-huh. the greasing, the trap, the offering of, uh, a last meal to the guy they were going to kill. And, uh, usually had ice cream because that was what was necessary in these hot countries as, as the last meal. And, um, It was that they often didn't get around to hanging you for years and years. And uh, so people were on death row for ages. And I spent some time, about a week, talking to Michael through the cage. And death row was, oh, it had about 30 or 40 people each in a tiny cell with Bars and they were literally monkey cages. They were treated like uh, animals. And I, w- I said to Michael, "Look, this this is a place of torture. There was always noise and screaming and shouting." And uh, he, he actually, I said, "Why don't we argue that?" Uh, although the death penalty can't be challenged, that this um, long years on death row amount to mental torture, always the threat of being executed the next day. And uh, I'll never forget, Michael put his finger to his lips and he said, (sighs) He said, listen, just listen. I did, and you could hear a pin drop. Everyone on that death row was squeezed up against their bars of the monkey cages listening to me. And he said, This is usually a place of incredible noise. Now they're listening to you because you're the only hope. You make this argument. He promised. I promised him to make the argument. Uh, he said it won't help me, and it didn't because they they uh, were determined to string him up. But years later, in this case of Pratt and Morgan against the Attorney General of Trinidad, um, we the, the Privy Council, the highest court in the Commonwealth, ruled that it was keeping someone on death row was mental torture the oscillating fear and hope and so on he had uh, a lot of evidence to that effect and so that became the law throughout the British Commonwealth that 16 or 18 countries accepting the decision of the Privy Council and then it was adopted in Malawi and Tanzania and other places. so it was um, it saved over thousands from the death penalty. Getting it introduced to the United States would be the people have tried. I think Stephen Breyer was uh, was quite influenced by it and one uh, spoke of it. Um, with juristic support but you've got to recognize that people like Clarence Thomas and others mm. are nationalistic <laughs> they they, would, they refuse to look at foreign judgments and uh, you know this this makes the Supreme Court a very insular body
0: If I may indulge in one more question All right so there's certainly been admirable achievements in international law, directly from your work, of course, including supporting the case against immunity for Pinochet and the conviction of Charles Taylor for uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity, including utilizing kids as soldiers when he was president of Sierra Leone. But international law continues to lack teeth and continues as impuians respecting powerful states and their allies. As you have so well elucidated, Turkey's genocide of over one million Armenians has never even been recognized as a genocide. And no Western head of state, well, aside from the Nazis, have ever been prosecuted for a war crime or a crime against humanity. Henry Kissinger got a Nobel Peace Prize and was never prosecuted. And the US continues its drone strikes around the world and won't allow its citizens to be tried in the ICC. This disparate treatment, some may argue, is colonialism donning a different garb. Is international law supporting great powers or has it managed to chisel away somewhat at their eminence and constrain their abuse?
1: Well, it's done a bit of chiseling. There are heads of state and political leaders who've been prosecuted, but they are largely those from countries that are pretty friendless. Milosevic, for example. Charles Taylor for example. They have gone to prison, but there are few and far between. I think there was a great deal of hope at the turn of the century. We had uh, the, the, the court. I was president of the court in Sierra Leone, which dealt eventually with Charles Taylor. We had the tribunals in The Hague, who were dealing with the perpetrators of the Rwandan genocide and dealing with perpetrators of crimes against humanity in the Balkans, and uh, things looked pretty hopeful, and an international criminal court came into being in no time and started its work in 2002. And the United Nations Security Council uh, started, it did actually act. It talked about responsibility to protect. It was uh, quite active in relation to, even America dropped its traditional exceptionalism, and Colin Powell introduced, uh, wanted to, did. Uh, refer to the ICC, the situation in Darfur, and so things became seemed to be on the move. And in 2011, uh, extraordinarily, Libya, where Gaddafi, was referred to the Security uh, by the Security Council to the ICC. And I think, for me, the turning point came in 2012, when there were outbreaks, part of the Arab Spring, of protests against Assad in Damascus, and all these people were walking down the streets with big banners saying, Assad to the Hague, and uh, I suddenly realized that we had... Created too high expectations. They were all mown down, machine gunned, and Assad was never sent to The Hague because, primarily because, Russia wanted a seaport on the Mediterranean and uh, blocked any attempt made by Britain and France occasionally to um, put him uh, before the ICC. So that was, I think, the turning point. Realization that we had really um, created too high expectations and these people with their banners Assad to The Hague were just going to be shot. So things deteriorated. And I've written a book published recently called Bad People and how to be with them, and I'm tracing the decline of the international justice idea in relation to courts, showing that the ICC in its 20 years has basically only dealt with Central African warlords and hasn't had the support. There's some talk of it now, maybe getting hold of the man, the perpetrator of Darfur, but that's yet to be seen. And um, I do think that the way forward is what are called Magnitsky sanctions on perpetrators of human rights abuses, that the West must come together, and so far 31 countries have, uh, it's law in Canada, Britain, America, European Union, that uh, those who are guilty of human rights abuse should be named and shamed and blamed by a Magnitsky sanction, a targeted sanction which stops them for, confiscates such money as they have in the West and which uh, bans them from entry. So I think although it's not a court and although it's not criminal punishment, this may be uh, the way forward at the moment.
0: Yes, I, I agree. And hopefully Australia implements that too. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Geoffrey. I very much appreciate it and your acute insight.
1: Not at all. Nice to talk to you, Alexandra.
0: Thank you. Have a wonderful evening, Jeffrey. All
1: right. All the best.
0: I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.